Well, it's a little interesting that uh, uh, the little ones are on their way out. Uh, children's church is beginning. The kids want to go, they can go. Obviously, we get to this passage, and the, the centerpiece is the Lord's Prayer, uh, but I'm actually not going to spend any time on the Lord's Prayer this morning, so uh, I'll explain myself in a minute. Um, I'm going to read uh, up front uh, the first 13 verses, and I'm going to ask you in a minute to get out Bibles and pay close attention to them, uh, but for now, just listen. Uh, I think there's something to that. Uh, Paul writes in Romans that faith comes from hearing. Uh, and hearing through the Word of Christ. Uh, So just listen to the Word of God uh, from Luke chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when He finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught His disciples. And He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Thus far, uh, the reading of God's Word. So, uh, I mentioned in the Sunday school class a few months ago uh, some of the insights of a professor named Richard Lovelace. He's a, a professor of church history. He's actually deceased now, but was a professor of church history. And in his uh, very influential book, The Dynamics of Spiritual Life, he explains uh, the preconditions uh, and the notable characteristics of American spiritual awakenings. That was his um, locus. That was the the point that he emphasized uh, in his studies. And he wanted to write uh, to the end of encouraging uh, Christians now Uh, to uh, embark upon uh, a uh, life and a a body life of renewal. So he he wants the church to be renewed, and he says, let's take a look at what took place back then. Maybe we can learn something. And, uh, And he wrote persuasively of the need for prayer. He said, prayer always marked spiritual awakenings, And they were precursors to spiritual awakenings. And I think he uh, even referred to the fact that prayer always undergirds substantive missionary endeavors. Uh, But he notes in that book how such prayer has virtually disappeared from the evangelical church. Uh, He's actually pretty punchy uh, in this section. He's he's pretty critical. 
we have, he says, apparently forgotten how to pray, and we have certainly lost mo- most of the motivation to pray. And the things about which we pour our energies into prayer often have little to do with God's concerns. For all the language of changing the world and rescuing the nation, uh, we have neglected the most important thing. Uh, We're a little like those disciples back in chapter 9 when Jesus uh, with uh, Peter, James, and John came down from the mountain. They were stymied, unable to deal with a demon. And Jesus said, well, you, you weren't praying. Uh, imagine trying to cast out a demon without praying. We're a little bit like that. Uh, so this section of Luke is remarkable, it's memorable, uh, although I think it's often misunderstood. And that's where I want you to have your Bibles uh, handy because I want to point out some stuff in there uh, that hopefully will help us understand uh, what's going on in the passage. Uh, Richard Pratt, uh, back during the missions conference, actually the first Sunday of March, preached on the Lord's Prayer proper, and I will refer you to that. Uh, that was a wonderful sermon. I went back and listened to it again this week, and he makes all the right points about how to pray the Lord's Prayer, um, but I'm going to deal with what comes after that uh, this morning. Um, there is actually no break uh, in the passage. Uh, in verse 5, uh, the conjunction there is and… Uh, that same conjunction takes place in verse 9, so it, it all flows, and there's also a linguistic link between verses 11 and 13 uh, that we will, um, in verses 11 and 13, that we'll notice when we get there. Um, so this is what I want to pay attention to. And, and an, another thing by way of introduction is to kind of bring all of this together in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, last week, we ended up by looking at Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and the way that she was sitting at Jesus' feet listening to Him. She received Jesus' commendation as pursuing the one necessary thing, that she was pursuing the good portion and it would not be taken from her. Uh, I I think that the fact that the very next verse has a disciple asking Jesus to pray Uh, While Jesus himself is praying, Jesus is praying in a certain place, the disciple says, uh, teach us to pray. Surely that is significant if we're wanting to understand Mary's good portion. And also, and I I think more importantly, uh, is to notice, at least I was drawn to this, uh, back in chapter 10, uh, in verse 21, uh, well, I'll just read it to you. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, that's a little bit surprising in the context, uh, but it's interesting that Jesus addresses God as his Father on fairly intimate terms. I thank you, Father. He's rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to God of his gracious will, his Father's gracious will, uh, his Father's pleasure, actually, if you dig a little bit further into it. And then he said this, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father 
or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So I just want to go back to that and say it's very interesting that Jesus says, you will not know the Father unless I choose to reveal Him to you. Now, I mean, we can get um, esoteric about that, but, you know, let's be mundane about it. Jesus is going to teach the disciples who the Father is. That's how they're going to know who the Father is. Instinctively, they can't understand who the Father is. It's not within the normal human capacity to understand, but Jesus is going to reveal the Father uh, to the disciples. It seems that's exactly what he's doing uh, in this passage. He is teaching them who the Father is. Now, I'm kind of giving it away a little bit, but that's okay. Uh, It needs to be reiterated. Um, As a matter of structure, what I think is going on here, if I were the king of the forest, uh, I would say that uh, there are two parabolic statements uh, followed by two points of application. So verses 5 through 8 are the first parable, the one of the bothered friend, and then Jesus makes an application uh, in verses eight or in verses nine and ten, then he moves into another somewhat parabolic statement uh, in verses eleven and twelve about the Father who gives, uh, and then he makes another uh, application statement in verse thirteen. So that's the way we're going to tackle it. Just going to be four points. Uh, so the first one is the bothered friend. Now this is again. I'm sorry. Uh, I wish this was a Sunday school class. I hope you have Bibles in front of you. I want to try to explain this because, again, I think that we have the capacity to misunderstand this, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But here, number one, uh, the Greek word that is translated impudence in our passage has given translators fits throughout the history of Bible translation. Uh, You can see that the footnote in your ESV offers the word persistence. Now, I want to tell you that nowhere in the Greek language ever does this word mean persistence. Never in ancient Greek does the word mean persistence. I don't think it means that now, uh, if the word still exists. The NIV translates the word as boldness, but then also gives you the word persistence as a footnote. Uh, The King James translates importunity Uh, The New King James reverts to persistence. Uh, The New Living Translation says shameless persistence. Uh, I want to suggest that none of those really communicate uh, what I think that the passage is teaching. Um, The word literally has to do with the absence of shame. That's what it means. The word shame is in there, but there is this discounting of shame. Something the opposite of shame is what this verse is about, uh, is what the word is about. Um, so the, the word shameless is in the ballpark. It, it might be a good translation except for one thing. Uh, we often imagine shamelessness to be, uh, in the right context, an admirable quality. Uh, so if someone is shameless, they don't care what other people think, you know, and they're going to do what they want to do, and as long as what they're doing is a good thing is the right thing, then we pat them on the back for being uh, shameless. Uh, That is not the way it was in the ancient Near East. Uh, In Palestine, among Israelis, shamelessness is a negative quality. To be without shame 
is worrisome. It's not an admirable trait. Uh, In that culture, which is a culture of honor and shame, if you were not ashamed of yourself when you had done something wrong, uh, that would be abhorrent. It would be a bad thing for you to be unashamed in in this context. So, it, it, it makes it, again, difficult to understand. Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up, now who's he? Uh, It's the guy in the house asleep with his children. Although he will not get up and give him anything, who's him? It's the guy outside yelling up at him, I need three loaves of bread. Although he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Again, you can see how the, the pronouns are a little bit confusing. Yet because of his Well, I'm going to translate it, unwillingness to be ashamed. He will rise. So again, we often misunderstand this, I think, to say because of the guy outside and his shamelessness, his importunity, his boldness, his persistence, this guy's going to get up. Even though he's his friend, the friendship doesn't count for much. let's, Let's switch it and say uh, he will not give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of the guy who's in bed and his unwillingness to be ashamed, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So that's one thing. Now, hopefully the next thing I'm going to do will tie that together. This is another linguistic trick. Not really a trick. I hope it's true to the form. Um, And this is more important. When Jesus says, which of you, in verse 5, it's a verbal construction that anticipates a strong negative response. The Greek words literally are tis ek humon, which of you. And again, everywhere that that little phrase occurs, what is being expected is a strong negative response. Which of you, the answer would be none of us. And the same phrase is in verse 11, where it says, What father among you, the same tis ekumon is there. Which of you fathers, and again, the, the, the Greek phrase works in exactly the same way, uh, none of us. So here's what's going on, I think. And I've got some support with this. Tim, I didn't check with you, but... Uh, I'll hear from you later. Um, and, and, and this, you know, again, the English doesn't hold together too much. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, comma, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him, semicolon, and he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything, and there's a question mark. How is that a question? Well, see, this is what I think is going on, is Jesus is saying, can any of you imagine someone refusing a friend who comes to him at midnight for three loaves of bread? Can you imagine that? And the listeners say, no, we can't imagine that. That would never happen. That would never happen. Now, I want to sidetrack one more time into ancient Israeli hospitality. Uh, bread was a big deal. Bread was what you served at every meal. 
People did not have their own ovens. There was a community oven. Uh, people took turns baking their bread. You didn't have leftovers. Uh, you ate the bread that you baked on that day. And if you didn't, hadn't baked any that day, you wouldn't have any. But you knew who did bake that day. And you knew who was likely to have some bread. Traveling at night was not unusual. Receiving a guest in the middle of the night, again, not unusual. And going to neighbors and asking them for help, again, not unusual. But hospitality in the ancient Near East, in the ancient Near East was nearly a sacred obligation. They took this very seriously. A small community is in view, uh, and they collectively, as a community, would feel the obligation to provide for this late visitor. So this man has a late visitor. He goes to a neighbor's house, knocks on the door, and says, I need three loaves of bread. And, uh, and, and pretty soon, the whole community, at least the next day, the whole community will know what has happened. Everything in that little village would be known to all. And so Jesus says, can you imagine something like this that I'm drawing up happening? It's almost a little bit of a joke. So let me read it this way. Uh, Can any of you imagine uh, having a friend and going to him at midnight and saying to him, friend, lend me three loaves, because a friend of mine has arrived on a journey I have nothing to set before him, And can you you imagine that friend answering from within, don't bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. What a lame excuse. The door shut, is that a big problem? Children with them in bed, is that a big problem? It's not a big problem if if there is a sacred obligation to hospitality. Can you imagine that happening? And it's almost as as though people would bust out laughing and say, the notion's ludicrous. That would never happen. And then Jesus says, I tell you, though he won't get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his honor, because of his unwillingness to be ashamed, he will rise up and give him whatever he needs. And I think that what the assumption is, is that Jesus is saying to them, If that's the way you guys treat each other, if that's the way you understand your corporate life together, and you understand it readily and easily, then what do you think will happen when you ask God for bread? When you ask God for the necessity of life? You see, bread's already been mentioned back in the Lord's Prayer, right? Give us today our daily bread. Give us today the bread that we need. Bread looms very large in this. Uh, Bread's a big part of it, and in fact, some of the other manuscripts say that if you, which of you fathers, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone. The, The theme of bread is here. So Jesus follows that, and he says, because of that, because of that, his first point of application. I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. This is the first point of application. All of the verbs are present tense and continuous. So it really would mean keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. In this verse, actually, persistence is in view. 
might be the reason that somebody tried to incorporate persistence into that odd word back in verse 8. But I think the important word there in verse 10 is Jesus says, for everyone who asks receives. Everyone, or to the one who seeks finds, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, uh, it will be open. It applies to everyone. It doesn't apply just to the religious people. It doesn't apply just to the Pharisees, the scribes, and the teachers of the law. There is no sense whatever in the Bible that being ordained to ministry gives you better effectiveness in prayer. The notion is abhorrent. Every single one of you, if you will keep asking, if you will keep seeking, if you will keep knocking, God will certainly give you what you're asking for. He will certainly do that. If you keep asking for faith, it's going to be given to you. If you keep seeking the kingdom of God, you're going to find it. If you keep knocking on the door of heaven, you will be admitted. Why? Because of your persistence? Not at all. Because of the one to whom you pray. He will give you what you're asking for. Jesus is teaching them who the Father is. This is actually a very interesting evangelistic strategy. Actually, not a strategy at all. But again, if we weren't so weak in prayer, if we really believed that God would certainly give us the thing that we're asking for, we would readily pray for our neighbors. One of the guys, one of my mentors was an uncommonly gifted evangelist. It was remarkable to watch him in action. And I would go with him into these shops in a neighborhood in London uh, that made you feel like you were in India. And he would routinely engage uh, the shopkeepers with the status of their business, and he would pray for them. Very simply pray for them. And, and he believed that God would give him what he asked for. Great way to love your neighbors is, to, is simply to pray patiently and tenaciously for them. So now the second parabolic kind of thing going on here in this passage. He actually moves to the father. What father among you? Again, which of you fathers, anticipating the negative, strong negative response, which of you fathers, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Um, Again, the construction assumes a negative response. None of us None of us fathers would dare do that, but we actually get to the crux of the matter because Jesus has told them when they said, how can we pray? Will you please teach us how to pray? He said, sure, pray our Father in heaven. That's the first thing he told them to do. He's told them to pray to their Father in heaven, and now he gets to what that means. And it's interesting that he's saying, you know, not, you don't pray God Most High, You don't pray, Lord of the universe. You pray, Father, hallowed be your name. So, I mean, this is obvious what it's saying. Uh, Maybe the point is to ask yourself, how do you pray? And, And more to the point, 
To whom do you pray when you pray? This is a live question for you to ask yourself. Uh, Richard brought up in his sermon uh, that we often mistake uh, our prayer to be addressed to a kindly, benevolent, um, inoffensive, grandfatherly type of character. Who are you praying to when you pray? A lot of you pray to an authority figure. You pray to a boss. Uh, You pray to someone with whom you can argue and negotiate. Uh, we, We surely need to be reverent when we pray, but do you understand the access that a child has to his or her father? This is surely what Jesus has in mind. A child can ask for things which for any other person would be inappropriate. Do you understand? A child can ask for anything. We recently had kids and grandkids come to our house. If in the middle of the night my son would have hollered out for a glass of water, you can imagine my response. I would have said, no, is your leg broken? Why are you waking me up? Uh, if, If the grandchild, the little one, Uh, calls out, you jump up and you give him whatever he asks for. And it it does fit here as he is telling them to pray to the Father in heaven. He's telling them you have access to God that you don't realize you have. You don't have to jump through all the hoops. You don't have to be on your best behavior. You don't have to get dressed in fancy clothes. You don't have to go to the temple and make sure you're in the right spot. You're a child, and you have access to your father. And a child trusts that his father will not only give him what he needs, but give it at the right time and withhold it if it would not be best. So, I mean, really what Jesus is doing here is not so much giving them the technology of prayer, the technique of prayer, When you pray, pray this way, although I think the Lord's Prayer is very important, very important for us to understand it, to pick it apart and model our prayers after it. That's not essentially what he's doing. Essentially what he's doing is he wants you to know the one to whom you pray. He is going to give you good things. You might ask for bad things. You might ask for a serpent, but don't worry, your father is going to give you a fish. And then he gets to his second point of application. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now that, it kind of comes out of the blue, and that's a little bit shocking. Why is the Holy Spirit introduced here? Well, again, you know, we've been, we've been taught back in the previous chapter that only one thing is necessary that there is a better portion. What happens when you ask for the Holy Spirit? And if you're of a Pentecostal ilk, uh, you might think that that means asking for magnificent and miraculous displays. Uh, I will tell you that uh, the Bible doesn't exactly do it that way. Uh, That if you look carefully uh, into what the Bible actually says about the Holy Spirit, Um, To ask for the Spirit would be to ask that you would be convicted of your sin. That's one of the things you get when you ask for the Holy Spirit. If you have uh, an imagination 
that is such that you think that you're pretty, a pretty good person, ask for the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives faith. Faith comes by the Holy Spirit. If you are weak in faith, have a tough time believing and have a tough time praying, if you ask for the Spirit, it will be given to you. The Spirit produces fruit against which there is no law. Maybe you're lacking in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Ask for the Holy Spirit, and it will certainly be given to you. The Spirit enables one to cry out, Abba, Father. Maybe you're shaky on this whole thing about approaching God as a father, and because of various things that have happened in your family and your upbringing, you're nervous about that. If you ask the Holy Spirit, He will give you the heart and the disposition by which you can cry out to your Father on intimate terms and call Him Abba. You know, in short, everything that you and I need to live lives that are rich and full and joyful and courageous and contented will be given by and through the Spirit to those who ask. That's clearly what Jesus is saying here. How in the world did we ever get to the point in the evangelical church where we've become weak in prayer? How did that happen? Well, if you're like me, you know exactly how that happens because it happens in your own life and it happens in your own household. Uh, You forget the tenacity of a heavenly father uh, who delights to give you his grace, who delights to give you everything you need. The big problem, of course, is always our unanswered prayers. What do we do with our unanswered prayers? I've talked to so many people that said, yeah, I used to pray, but it didn't work. You know, when you get up and say that God will give us everything that we need, that sounds like mockery to me. Because there's so many things that I need that God hasn't given me. Well, this is the place of super deep discipleship. There is not a place where you will grow more deeply, more readily, more strenuously than when you pray and wrestle with unanswered prayer. Because that's, at that point is where the devil is going to come at you full force. He's going to slander God. He's going to accuse you and try to drive that wedge in between you and your loving Heavenly Father. Look at all the things that you lack that He's not giving you. We are prone to reject God's promises, reject these promises, and then prayer becomes vestigial. We slowly and imperceptibly cease investing in the kingdom. Well, but what prayer gives us all the opportunity to do is to reorder our values over what is necessary. I mean, this is the interesting thing, just to catalog, what is it that you're praying for? And the challenge I'd give you this morning is, will you pray for the Holy Spirit at least as much as you pray for the other tangible needs in your life? Will you do that? I mean, here's the thing, the promises are here, and I'm convinced of this. If every one of us would wake up every morning and pray the Lord's Prayer, And even better, if you would find someone else to pray it with you, I think that God is fairly obligated to change the life of Carriage Lane Church, to alter it, to improve it, to grow it. There's no promise more clearly given 
anywhere in the Bible than that God will give the Holy Spirit to those that ask. Values may need to be reordered. And imaginations need to be expanded. To imagine a life free from worry and anxiety, imagine a life founded on confidence in the Father's favor, imagine a life of contentment in which you were sure all the time that you had enough. Again, the point, I think, in answer to the request of the disciples is not so much the technique of prayer, but rather the realization of the character of the one to whom you are going to pray. That's what I think is going on here. If your little community can function in a helpful way toward one another, what do you imagine God's going to do? And if you fathers, even though you are evil, he didn't say even though you have a few shortcomings. And if you fathers being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more can you expect your Father in heaven to give the Holy Spirit to those that ask? This is the real work of faith. I've got that Lovelace quote up there at the top of the, the order of service. It is an item of faith that we are children of God, but there is much experience in us against it. And the faith that is able to surmount that experience and warm oneself at the fires of God's love rather than stealing love and self-acceptance from other sources is actually the root of holiness. That's worth contemplating. You might know the name George Mueller. Uh, George Mueller was famous for his prayer life, remarkable missionary, uh, famous for his determination neither to go into debt nor to ask people directly for money. Do you know the stories of George Mueller? Uh, he, he would never ask anybody for money. He said, I'm just going to pray and see what God does. And I think in today's dollars, he raised something like $150 million uh, for the work of an orphan house uh, that he maintained. He was a fearless evangelist, German guy who made his way to Britain and in England was his, most of his ministry. Uh, his exhortation to his congregation uh, actually was not to prayer, but rather to contentment. Uh, even more, it was an exhortation to find your happiness in God. This is surely the fruit of prayer. And this is what is lacking when we don't pray. Uh, he wrote, Dear Christian reader, will you not try this way? Will you not know for yourself the preciousness and the happiness of this way of casting all your cares and burdens and necessities upon God? This way is open to you, as to me. Everyone is invited and commanded to trust the Lord, to trust in Him with all his heart and to cast his burden upon him, and to call upon him in the day of trouble. Will you not do this, my dear brethren in Christ? I long that you may do so. I desire that you may taste the sweetness of that state of heart, in which, while surrounded by difficulties and necessities, you can yet be at peace, because you know that the living God, your Father in heaven, cares for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we simply ask you that you would uh, build our faith, 
For those that don't believe, Father, would you give them a compelling vision uh, to lay aside their burdens and be honest and forthright about their sins and come to you, expecting forgiveness, expecting uh, salvation, expecting your mercy. Uh, Father, for those of us who are Christians, who have professed, who have been baptized, uh, we pray even more urgently uh, that we would seek you, that we would ask, that we would keep on knocking uh, to the end that you would uh, regenerate within the church uh, the prayer that can move us toward everything that we hope for. Uh, So, Father, would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen. Please stand. Thank you.